Well, great singing. Why don't we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 17 this morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew and our uh, series focused on the King and His Kingdom. Come to a very important and pivotal passage in Matthew's Gospel, a text that outlines what we refer to as the transfiguration of Jesus. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 13. As you're turning there, I'll begin to read Matthew 17, 1 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come again before you this morning with open Bibles, seeking to hear your voice. And it's our prayer that what we hear from your word would be more vivid to us than anything we might see with our eyes. That you would give us a clear picture of Jesus and all of his glory, even as we anticipate and reflect upon his suffering. Lord, would you deal with our hearts? Draw us nearer to your Son, we pray. Amen. It is entirely possible to be in the presence of royalty and yet not know it. That was the lesson that I walked away with when I heard British evangelist Rico Tice share his biggest evangelistic blunder. He writes about it later in his book, Honest Evangelism, a book that we would commend to you as just a phenomenal read. But he writes this, he says, I was invited to eat with a father and son in a very exclusive club in London, not a regular haunt for me. If you know anything about Rico, he's a very large former rugby player with disheveled hair, so it's strange to me to try and picture him in an upscale club in London, but nevertheless, he was there. He writes, I found myself standing on the stairs of this restaurant waiting for my hosts. 
Opposite me, also waiting, was a man I vaguely recognized, but I thought nothing of it. So, as English people do, we gave each other a sheepish nod and waited awkwardly for five whole minutes in total silence. Membership has its privileges. Then a man came from around the corner and said, Ah, William, there you are. We're in the back dining room. And I realized at that point it was Prince William. I'd been with him for five minutes, and we'd had nothing better to do than talk to each other, and I'd barely noticed him. I'd lost the opportunity for a once-in-a-lifetime conversation. I'd just seen a tall young man with thinning blonde hair. What I hadn't seen was that he was my future king. I want to ask you this question as we begin this morning. Why is it that so many people reject Jesus? Why is it that so many people find Jesus to be utterly dismissible? Certainly there are a variety of reasons why people fail to trust in Jesus or refuse, rather, to trust in Jesus. But I'd like to submit to you that at the the very top of that list is the fact that so often we present Jesus merely as a man with thinning blonde hair and not the true, current king who reigns over the kingdom of heaven. It was certainly possible in the days of Jesus for people to miss his identity, to be unimpressed by the Christ who came as the suffering servant. It was even possible for the disciples so very often as we've made our way through this gospel account to completely and utterly miss the identity of Jesus in all of His honor and glory. But here in chapter 17, in these first 13 verses of the chapter, the curtain, if you will, is is peeled back. And Jesus' honor and glory, His brilliance and authority is on full display and absolutely unmistakable. Here is Jesus, the coming King, revealing Himself as He truly is. And Peter, James, and John are completely transformed. Why do people dismiss Jesus? I submit to you it's because people have not encountered Jesus as He truly is. And in this text, Matthew will not allow us to escape who Jesus is. Jesus is the King who comes with honor and glory after His suffering and death. That's the message of this text. Jesus is the King who comes with honor and glory after His suffering and death. That is the framework from which we are to understand Jesus this morning. The framework of seemingly contrary descriptions, honor and glory, and yet suffering and death. That is the Savior presented to us in the Scriptures. The text unfolds in two almost equal halves. In verses 1 to 8, we have a vision of honor and glory. And in verses 9 to 13, we have an explanation of suffering and death. It is only in Jesus that these things are mingled honor, glory, suffering, and death. Let's look first at this vision of honor and glory. 
And it is a vision. Jesus himself refers to it as a vision in verse 9. He tells his disciples, tell no one the vision. And as we'll see from Peter's later reflection on this event, it was a vision of honor and glory. Now, in chapter 16, Matthew has left us on a bit of a cliffhanger. If you were with us last week, we intentionally avoided comment on verse 28. Truly, Jesus says, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Chapter 17 begins almost abruptly after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain. It's been a mere six days since Jesus looked at his disciples and asked, who do you say that I am? A mere six days since Jesus explained to them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and then be raised. It's only been six days since the disciples have heard the call of discipleship, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And yet it must have seemed like a lifetime, those six days, as the disciples puzzled and wondered amongst themselves, what did he mean? Some who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This has puzzled people for centuries. In fact, it's very often puzzled scholars. It's been used very often by hacks who would seek to say that Christianity is not true because Jesus failed to keep this promise. If Christianity were true, then Jesus would have returned in the lifetime of the apostles. But notice the way that the end of 16 rolls right into the beginning of chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. We might say some, not all, some. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And in what follows is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that they would not see death until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What Jesus has happened here on the Mount of Transfiguration is, if you'd like, a preview of coming attractions. It is an unveiling of his power and glory and the majesty that will be his when he returns to judge the living and the dead. As Peter reflects on this mountaintop experience, if you will, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, You mean the the God who says, my glory I will share with no one, my glory I will give to no other? That God is the God who gave the Son honor and glory? And the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. It is to these some, Peter, James, and John, on this holy mountain that Jesus reveals His coming kingdom glory in unmistakable majesty and brilliance. A mountaintop experience indeed. But what I want us to see as we make our way through the tension that begins to arise in verse 2 is that this would have been anything but a comfortable experience for the disciples. 
My fear is that we are too casual in our approach to Jesus as the coming king. But what we'll find is as this story unfolds in front of the disciples, they're absolutely undone. It is too much to handle. Now, there are three movements, three events that take place on this mountain, each one of them pointing to Jesus as the coming glorious King. We begin in verse 2, He was transfigured before them. That's the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. It's not that Jesus changed form like a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, but it is that Jesus' appearance was changed. He was revealed for who He truly is. And the content of this change, the nature of this change, is explained in the rest of verse 2. His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. His face shone like the sun. Back when I was at least weighing the option of perhaps moving here to western Pennsylvania, it was August of 2017. If you remember that period of time, there was the great American eclipse taking place. People were traveling all over the place to certain portions of the country to get a better look at the solar eclipse that was going to take place. I can remember being on the phone with a man who became my insurance agent as he concluded our conversation by pleading with me not to look directly at the sun. At least he cared about his clients. But he pleaded with me, do not look directly at the sun. Why? Because even with all the excitement about what was happening, there is the understanding that even when the sun is eclipsed by the moon, it is too much for human eyes to take in. It is too glorious. It is too bright. It is too brilliant. And here Matthew, as he searches for a word to describe the appearance of Jesus as he's revealed in his glory, he can only say his face shone like the sun. Later, John, who was on this mountain, would write of Jesus in another vision. In Revelation chapter 1, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Here is God the Father peeling back the curtains and showing the disciples, who this Jesus is, matchless in glory and brilliance, unmistakably the king of the universe. Think about how terrifying a vision like that would be. Think about the lasting impact that a vision like that would have. Indeed, as you continue to read the New Testament, you have the sense that Peter never recovered from this moment. And yet, this is only the beginning. The tension continues to rise. Verse 3, Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. If the shining of Jesus' face points to him as the glorious king, 
so too does the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Moses, that great lawgiver, the author of the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the one through whom God gives His people the commandments. And Elijah, that great prophet who on Mount Carmel confronts the prophets of Baal. Here you have all the commandments of the law and all of the prophecies of the prophets being represented in these two great figures and they stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus and they speak with Him. The, the image is unmistakable. Both men, Moses and Elijah, saying, in effect, everything that we had to say was about this One. All of our writing, all of our prophecy pointed to this coming King. Here He is. The fulfillment of all of the hopes and dreams of Israel. The fulfillment of the Old Testament is here in the person of Christ. And Peter, never the silent type, begins to chime in. Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. See, Peter, Peter makes a grave mistake. In that, while being on the Mount of Transfiguration meant to show the matchless glory, the unique brilliance of Jesus, seeks to transform the Mount of Transfiguration into a spiritual Mount Rushmore. You know that great sculpture on the face of the mountain in South Dakota picturing Washington and Jefferson, Roosevelt and Lincoln? Sometimes we speak of Mount Rushmore's figuratively. We speak of the Mount Rushmore of basketball players. Who, who is on the Mount Rushmore? Who is the best of the best, the elite? Here Peter, in his desire to construct a tent, a tabernacle for each of these three men, is in effect saying, Lord, this is, this is the Mount Rushmore of Israel's history. Here is Moses and Elijah and Jesus. It is good that we stay here. But notice in the warp and the woof of this passage that the very moment, the very moment, that Peter seeks to raise Moses and Elijah up. They, in effect, bring Jesus down. There's more than one way to miss Jesus. And one of the ways that Peter misses Jesus here is by exalting Moses and Elijah to equal and level footing with Jesus Himself. And so the third movement happens. This is the very center of verses 1 through 8. A voice from the cloud points to the glory of Jesus. It's not just His shining face. It is not just the law and the prophets. It is the Father Himself. We read in verse 5 that He was still speaking. He's fumbling and filibustering. And yet a voice comes from the cloud. It thunders from the cloud. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
listen to Him. Loved ones, God the Father speaks twice in Matthew's Gospel, once at the baptism of Jesus, at which point He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And here, where He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, listen to Him. This is God the Father giving honor and glory to God the Son by, in effect, handing Him the microphone. Listen to Him. And at this point, and only this point, the boys are completely undone. I want you to notice that minus the testimony of the Father from heaven, they would have completely and utterly misunderstood what they had seen. Radiant face, Moses and Elijah, let's build tabernacles. Wrong. We neglect the Word of God to our great danger. At this point, as the Father speaks and interprets all that is happening, this is my Son, this is the glorious One, this is the One to whom the kingdom belongs, they fell on their faces, verse 6, and they were terrified. I like to think that if we were young Christians gathered around Peter in the early days of the church and asked him to recount after Jesus rose from the dead this very moment, he would have said, you know, we went up on that mountain not really understanding what Jesus was going to do. He prayed on the mountains a lot. Thought we were going up there for a prayer meeting. We were pretty content to do that. All of a sudden, Jesus starts glowing. That was a lot to take in. Then all of a sudden, we saw Moses and Elijah. Don't ask me how I knew who they were. I just knew it was them. And they start talking to him. But then that voice, oh, that voice. I got to tell you, as soon as I heard it, my knees buckled. I was so afraid I couldn't look up. I could feel James and John, you know, they're pretty boisterous most of the time. Those are a couple tough guys, those two. I could feel them shivering. that voice. But this is what leads us to the primary message of the transfiguration. The Father, the father attests to the Son, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The disciples hear this and they fall on their faces terrified. Verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Loved ones, the only person who will save you from the coming of Jesus is Jesus. The only one who can speak words of grace, rise, stand, have no fear. When Jesus comes in fullness of His kingdom glory, the only one who will save you on that day is Jesus. It does not even matter 
how much you and I have reverenced the law and the prophets. It matters only that we have heard their testimony and the Father's testimony to the Son as the Savior King and that we have trusted in Him. That is the only way that we will stand in that day without fear and without shame at His appearance. This Jesus is coming with unmistakable honor and glory, the kind of glory that puts us on our faces in fear. And yet this Jesus is the one who dies for sinners so that we might stand in that day. Because right on the heels of this vision of honor and glory, we have an explanation of suffering and death. As they were coming down the mountain, can you imagine what the conversation would have been like? Or if there was any conversation? As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now notice, Jesus does not say, tell no one the vision. This vision takes place in three of the four Gospels. He does not say, tell no one the vision. He says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why? If you're a parent, you show your children something really neat, you'll know that they'll never stop bothering you to see it again. And here are the boys coming down the mountain, and they're thinking, well, we're, we got the transfiguration going. Jesus, do that thing again. Guys, you got to see this. We, we're up there. Do the thing where you glow. Get Moses and Elijah out here. Where's that cloud at? But the mistake that they make, and the mistake that is so often made, is that in the moment of seeing transfiguration, they forget that what Jesus came to do is crucifixion, resurrection. We're not doing transfiguration all the time. We're doing crucifixion, resurrection. I'm bringing forth to you, he says, a glimpse of what it will be like upon my return, but on this visit, it's crucifixion, resurrection. Both of which are implied in what Jesus says, right? Tell no one the vision until... The Son of Man is raised from the dead. It implies, of course, that He will be dead. Here in the person of Jesus, we have the honor and glory of the coming kingdom mingled with the suffering and death of a Roman cross. How can, how can, how can you remain dismissive of this king? I don't give myself much to the tabloids, as you could probably imagine. But you know, I've just been watching all the drama that surrounded Harry as he's left the royal family. And you know, one of the things that he said that was so noble, so beautiful, was that he maintained a desire to fulfill his military duties even as he stepped away from the throne. How honorable. but it's an honor that pales in comparison and only points to the honor and glory of a king who would step down from his throne to wage war on behalf of his people. 
a king who would step aside from this kind of glory to endure the utter shame of the cross? How can your heart not be drawn to a king who would would love you like that? How can you not come? This king dies for sin and is raised from the dead so that you and I can be kept safe on the day of His appearing. Come. The disciples, confused as they ever are, ask, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? It's not merely the scribes who say that. The Scriptures attest to that. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, Verses 5 and 6, Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I send you Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Here the disciples think to themselves, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, then that means, it must mean, that Elijah has come. And if Elijah has come, then it, it means, it must mean, that all things have been restored. Do you see that? Jesus affirms that in verse 11. He will restore all things. And if, in fact, all things are restored, Jesus, how can we be speaking of a cross for our King? Here Jesus is clear that restoration took place when Elijah, that is, John the Baptist, came and preached a message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How is God setting the world right? What is God's program for making right all that is wrong with the universe? It is the preaching of the gospel. It is the preaching of repentance to one sinner at a time. So that Jesus can say, that Elijah has already come, and he's already begun to restore all things. He announced the coming kingdom, the kingdom that will come in its fullness upon my return. But they did not recognize him, and they did to him whatever they pleased. A clear callback to chapter 14, where John the Baptist is killed by Herod. John the Baptist shows up on the scene and says, Herod, you know, it's unlawful for you to sleep with your brother's wife. And as it is today, was then, the response is, John, I don't know what you think you're doing, but you're going to try to restore things in this kingdom. It's off with your head. They refused to recognize John the Baptist as the Elijah who is to come. They did to him whatever they pleased. And so also, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. In the same way, suffering unto death is this king for his kingdom people. Will you come? Will you be a part of this kingdom? This has direct application to what we have gathered to do as a church this morning. This is the first Sunday of the month, and so in light of that is a communion Sunday. In just a few moments, we're going to partake of 
the bread and the cup together as we do so in remembrance of Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. I want you to listen. Listen to the way that Paul describes what we are about to do. He writes in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim. Stop. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, you came to church today to proclaim. You came not to get, you came to give. You came to preach. In the act of the Lord's Supper, we are all preachers. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Friends, this is our sermon as we gather around the table. We proclaim to one another that there is a coming day when the skies will be parted and Jesus will be revealed in all of His honor and glory and the world will see Him as He is. It will be impossible to dismiss Him. And yet between this day and that day, we place all of our hope, all of our trust in the King whose death brought us life and whose resurrection brings us entrance into His kingdom. Behold your God. There is none like Him. Honor and glory. Suffering and death. Come. Lord Jesus, we thank You for who You are. And when we see You as You are, You are impossible to dismiss. And so, Lord, it's our prayer this morning that You would remove the blinders from our eyes. That we would see in Jesus not merely, not only a first century Israelite, but that we would see in Jesus the King of the universe. The King who rules and reigns over the kingdom of heaven. The One who has all authority in heaven and earth. The One who is the beloved Son of the Father. Lord, You are the only One. You are the only one who on that day will save us from your coming. 
It is only as we are found in you that we hear those gracious words, rise and have no fear. And it's all because you suffered and were raised from the dead. Not for your sins, but for ours. Not to secure your place in your kingdom, but to secure our place in your kingdom. So Lord, for those of us who know you and trust in you and follow you, our prayer this morning is that as we take of the Lord's Supper, as we fellowship with one another around the table, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't merely reflect upon ourselves, that we would reflect upon our need for Jesus and the glory of the cross, but that we would proclaim the death of Jesus to one another and to all who are watching, that we would proclaim the death of Jesus until He comes. And Lord, we thank You that You've given us this glorious sign, the bread and the cup, to partake of together, knowing that You you have said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Lord, in the bread and the cup, we proclaim your death until you come and take up the cup with us afresh and anew in your kingdom glory forever and ever, world without end. Amen.